Surprised to see so many of you out here on our holy day of the Super Bowl. But I'm glad you guys made it out. It's really awesome. Uh, If you have your Bibles, please flip them open to the Song of Solomon, chapter 5. It's uh, one of those more obscure books that we usually don't touch in church, but I'm glad to be able to open it up with you guys today. It is about dead center in your Bible. So if you hit the prophets, you've gone too far. So if you're in like Isaiah or Jeremiah or something, you need to back up. If you're in the Psalms or the Proverbs, you need to go forward just a couple more books. But um, the first two services, we've been kind of diving into this book. Uh, the first service, I just gave an introduction to what the book is. And the second sermon, we talked a little bit about the passion that is contained within these words. And for those of you guys who have not read this book, it is a love song. But it's not like a traditional song. It's not like a, a song you'd hear on the radio. It's, it's more like an opera. It's more like a musical that you would go see on like a Broadway. It, it tells a story. And the story it tells is almost certainly fictional. But it is between Solomon, uh, the, the King Solomon of the Bible, and a woman who remains unnamed throughout the book. We don't know her name or identity. Uh, and she might be a completely fictitious person. Now, the book takes place from her perspective, and it is all about the romance that she shares with Solomon. The reason why we believe it's fictional is because, to the best of our knowledge, Solomon never had a romance like this. Solomon was a polygamist with a capital P. He had 300 wives, and he had 700 concubines, which is just a little too many for anyone to to take care of. But Solomon did not practice monogamy, and yet this book is clearly a depiction of exclusivity, monogamy, and passionate love between one man and one woman. And so there's, there's ways that we need to look at it from a biblical perspective. What we talked about last service is one of the reasons as to why a lot of the church avoids this book. It is very sensual. I wouldn't describe it as graphic. I don't think it's gratuitous in the way that it describes things. But some people think it is. Some people think it's, it's a little too sensual. And if you think that way, well, I got news for you. You kind of have a problem with the author of the book, which would be God, by the way. This is, this, is, this is his word. He can put whatever he wants inside of his word. So if we're uncomfortable about these topics, if they, if they make us uh, a little bit shy away and desire something different, there might be something wrong with our hearts. They may have been tainted by the world and by the culture that we live in, and we need to be careful to disentangle ourselves from these things and to pursue godliness in the way that he intended. And that means taking his word at face value. So, like I said, in the first one, we just went over the context and a little bit of the ideas presented within the book. The second service, we went over the passion contained in romance, which is really cool. Now, this service, we're going to be talking about marital conflict, which is always a fun topic. And as a marriage counselor, I see this all the time. So I'm, I'm happy to show you guys what I've experienced in my nine years of marriage counseling, and hopefully it helps you out. If you're a single person listening to this and you're trying to check out, this will help you in conflict in general. It will help you in your relationships in general. And if you intend on getting married one day, this will be very important for you to understand. But it also will be beneficial for you if you have a plan to just stay single for the rest of your life. We talked about this first service. That's fine. There are people who are called to a lifetime of, uh, of singleness. We see them in the Bible, guys like Jeremiah, Daniel, the Apostle Paul. But they did not just be single to be single. They were single to serve the church 
in an exclusive and really intense way that married people cannot. So our culture does value singleness, but our culture values singleness out of kind of a narcissism or a selfishness. If you are to be single, then you need to dedicate your singleness to the work of God. That's what you should be dedicating your singleness towards. And that means you're going to be a part of the body of Christ, and you're going to have to help people within their marriages. You're going to have to be helping people in their relational conflicts. And we'll talk more about that as we get into this chapter. So chapter five is very interesting. Uh, We're not really certain if this is a dream sequence, like the woman is having a nightmare, or if this actually happens within the relationship, but it does depict a conflict, and there's really no clear-cut resolution, which I think is very important to marital conflict in general, and I'll explain what I mean later. But if you're in that chapter, we're going to start in verse two. I slept, but my heart was awake. When I heard my lover knocking and calling, open to me, my treasure and my darling, my dove, my perfect one. My head is drenched with dew, my hair with the dampness of the night. But I responded, I have taken off my robe. Should I get dressed again? I have washed my feet. Should I get them soiled? My lover tried to unlatch the door and my heart thrilled within me. I jumped up and opened the door for my love, but and my hands dripped with perfume. My fingers dripped with lovely myrrh as they pulled back the bolt. I opened to my lover, but he was gone. My heart sank. I searched for him, but I could not find him anywhere. I called to him, but there was no reply. The night watchmen found me as they made their rounds. They beat and bruised me and stripped off my veil. These watchmen on the walls. Make this promise, O women of Jerusalem. If you find my lover, tell him I am weak with love. This is the young women of Jerusalem. Why is your lover better than all others, O woman of rare beauty? What makes your lover so special that we must promise this? The young woman My lover is dark and dazzling, better than 10,000 others. His head is finest gold. His wavy hair is black as a raven. His eyes sparkle like doves beside springs of water. They are set like jewels washed in milk. His cheeks are like gardens of spices given off fragrance. His lips are like lilies perfumed with myrrh. His arms are like rounded bars of gold set with beryl. His body like bright ivory glowing with lapis lazuli. His legs are like marble pillars set in sockets of finest gold. His posture is stately like the noble cedars of Lebanon. His mouth is sweetness itself. He is desirable in every way. Such, O women of Jerusalem, is my lover, my friend. Let's pray. Father, we want to thank you so much for your word, how it beautifully and purposely it instructs and guides us even in the most intimate areas of our life. I pray, God, that as we go through this passage, we'd be able to apply it to our relationships, that we'd be able to learn from your wisdom and to grow in the way that we treat people and the way that we reflect you. We're very thankful for you, God, and in your name, amen. Okay, so this fight is very interesting. And as I said in my first sermon, What the Song of Solomon gives us is an idealized version of romantic love, meaning this is not the real. This is not how things actually work. And we talked about why the ideal is so important, right? The ideal gives us a vision of how things ought to be, not necessarily how they are. If you want descriptions of what real relationship struggle is all about, just read the other books here. Bible, right? You'll see, you'll see some pretty intense marital struggles and fights happen within the books of Genesis or uh, any of the others that mention marriage. So what we have here is we have a fight, and some of you guys reading this are like, kind of wish my fights were like this. 
You know, it doesn't really seem like a big deal. They're being very gentle with one another. They're not yelling. They're not screaming. They're not name-calling, which tends to be how conflict goes in our actual life. But there is still a conflict. And what this is showing us is it's showing us an ideal of how marital conflict should go. And we can learn a lot from it. So the first thing I want you guys to glean from this is that marital conflict is part of the ideal of marriage. So some people would say, like, well, the ideal of marriage is no conflict. And that would be true if we were perfect people. But we're not. So any depiction of marriage, no matter how good it is, is going to have conflict within it. Because when you have two imperfect people coming at areas and issues from two very different perspectives, there's going to be conflict, there's going to be misunderstanding, there's going to be fighting. But there is a way that that conflict needs to be contained and understood. And by the way, the conflict looks very different depending on the couple you talk to. Some couples come from very, like, outwardly passionate families, and so when they get into conflict, it's passionate, man. They're, they're raising their voices, they're yelling, they're, and they get into it. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. I'm going to talk about that later. Other couples come from families that are more quiet and reserved, and so when they fight, it, it's kind of like just a stern conversation, you know, and you wouldn't really know that they are fighting, but it is, right? It is fighting for them. So different cultures fight in different ways, but regardless— there is an overall methodology in which we express our discomfort. So this is the first thing that we learn from this fight. Verses 2 through 3. I slept, but my heart was awake. When I heard my lover knocking and calling, open to me, my treasure, my darling, my dove, my perfect one. My head is drenched with dew, my hair with the dampness of the night. But I responded, I have taken off my robe. Should I get dressed again? I have washed my feet. Should I get them soiled? So the first thing that we get from these couple verses, and you see what the conflict is about. Solomon has showed up to her door. Now, we don't know exactly what's going on here. It's possible this romance takes place over time, and it's not chronological. So at this point, perhaps they're not married yet. And maybe Solomon is showing up at her house to take her on a date or something like that. And he's like, hey, the dew is on my hair, meaning it's probably uh, the beginning of, it's probably dawn when he's showing up. That's when dew forms. And so he's showing up at her door at dawn. Maybe he has a fun day planned for them or something like that. And he calls out and she's like, ah, you know, she's waking up in the morning. She's not a morning person, apparently. And she's like, gosh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm undressed. I don't really want to get dressed. And then if I get down, I let you in. Then my feet get dirty and I just don't want to do that. And so he tries to break in a little bit and then he takes off. He leaves. And we'll talk about that in a second. But when she comes to let him in, he's already gone. So that, that is the source of their conflict, and that's how it goes. The first thing that we glean here is when we have conflict, there's an importance to clear communication that comes from vulnerability and personal ownership of emotional distress. What I see most as a marital con, uh, uh, counselor is that people project negative feelings onto their partner. So let me, let me give you an example. Right here, he is calling out to her. He's saying, hey, I want to hang out with you, right? He is being very clear and concise within his communication towards her. This is what I want. I want to be with you. Now, that seems easy, but again, I have seen couples where just saying something like this is difficult. So I was counseling this one couple, and I was going through a fight with them. And I asked them, how did the fight start? And the wife said, well, 
he told me, you know, I wish you loved me as much as you love our kids. And then I respond and said, well, if I don't love our kids, no one will. And that was kind of the beginning of their conflict. Now, as I scratched beneath the surface a little bit, and I got down into their communication, what I realized had happened is what he was trying to communicate is, I love you. I love my time with you. It's special and precious to me. But sometimes I feel like you give more attention to our kids than you do to me. I want to spend more time with you. That's what he was trying to communicate. But it came out as an accusation. The reason why it came out as an accusation is because he lacked the courage, and this takes courage, he lacked the courage to be vulnerable and transparent with her and expressing a desire. And instead of doing that and owning his emotions, he transformed it into an attack. And then she responded in kind, right? She responded with an equal attack. Now, again, when I got down to what she really meant, what she was trying to communicate is, I actually think you're a very good parent. I think you're a good father. But I notice that you don't spend as much time with our kids as I would like you to, right? That's what she was trying to communicate. But it came out as, you're a bad parent, right? It came out as, like, if I don't, then the kids will just be neglected. It came out as an attack, And the fight went on from there. But if you were to pause it and say, well, if you guys could have just expressed it exactly how you felt, it wouldn't have turned into a conflict. You would have actually been able to communicate about this. Notice how she responds, right? She does not respond with the same level of emotional vulnerability. How do we know? After he leaves... She is immediately distressed, meaning if she met what she said in verse 3 of, I've already taken off my robe, I don't want to get my feet dirty, right? If, if she really meant that, and he took off, she would have been okay. She'd be like, okay, that's what I wanted. But the fact that when she goes to the door and he's gone and she's in distress tells us that she lied here. She lied. Now, what was she trying to get? That's a question we don't really know. We don't really know her motive. It could have been she just woke up cranky. And she said something out of uh, emotion. She was just like, I can't believe you woke me up. Get out of here. Right? And then she immediately realized that that was not what she meant to say. That's not what she wanted to say. That's possible. What else is possible is that she wanted him to try harder. In other words, she wanted to spur on romance and affection, utilizing passive-aggressive, non-direct communication. This is always a bad idea. If you want your partner to try harder, say that. Say, hey, I love you, and I appreciate you coming to my house in the middle of the night, but maybe come at a reasonable hour next time. You know, open the door. Like, if you want to hang out with him, open the door and hang out with him, but then let him know that what he did was displeasing to you. Right? I don't appreciate what you did. I want to hang out with you, but try it differently next time. But again, that takes emotional vulnerability. To say, ah, you know, to make up excuses like this, ah, you know, I took off my robe, it's not, you know, it's not the right time, I don't have my makeup on, my hair's not done, whatever she's going to say, that kind of communication is easier to say because it does, it says what you want without saying it. It communicates without being vulnerable, but I'll tell you, it doesn't work. It doesn't work. If you feel unwanted, if you feel unrespected by your partner, you need to directly communicate that to them. You can't subtly hint at it and expect them to catch the hint. Because here's something that you may have not ever considered, especially ladies, because I find this from women more than from men. 
maybe the person you married is kind of thick. I don't know if you've ever considered that, but maybe he's kind of thick and maybe he's not picking up on your hints. And you'd be like, well, how could you not pick up on my hints? Well, if you've been married for years, some of these couples, they've been married for years. And like, and you haven't gotten that he's thick yet. Like you've been hinting at this for years and he hasn't figured it out and you, you haven't gotten it yet. But you know how it translates in their mind? It translates, he knows he's just not doing it. He gets it. No, he knows what he's supposed to do. He's just not doing it. And this is very different. And this is in the same point, but it's very key. What this turns into is it attributes malice to ignorance. And that is always a dangerous thing to do within a relationship. What I mean is that instead of looking at your partner's behavior and assuming maybe he's ignorant, maybe he doesn't know better, you're assuming that his behavior is intentional and it's aimed at hurting you. A lot of us develop this, by the way, from very real things, meaning we have had relationships in which people have treated us this way. But here's the thing. You will never gain anything from assuming the worst except for a momentary reprieve from emotional discomfort. That's all you're going to gain. Meaning if I assume the worst in my partner, the best that's going to come is I will have a momentary reprieve from discomfort emotionally. Because when you hope for the best and you don't get it, you have disappointment. And disappointment is really hard to wrestle with. So it's easier to put your walls up and to say like, oh no, they just don't care. It's easier to do. And it will give you something. It will give you a momentary reprieve from emotional discomfort. But you know what it can't ever do? It can't ever fix the problem. You're guaranteeing that the problem is going to continue. And when you start talking that way to your partner, assuming malice when it's not there, what you're going to do is you will destroy your relationship. You will tear it apart brick by brick. Because there's something that can be overcome within relationships. Ignorance and mistakes can be overcome. Intentional malice and manipulative behavior, when it is called as such, it is almost impossible for a relationship to come back from that. Because your partner would be like, well, if you married such a manipulator, such a monster, well, then what can I do? Because now you're going to interpret all of their behavior through that lens, which may not be accurate. May not be accurate. So not only destroys the problem at hand, but it also destroys all preceding problems that will come down the line. All because of a lack of vulnerability and intense emotional projecting. We have to have the courage to own our own emotions and to express them as such. Now, men don't think they do this. When I counsel men, they don't think they do this. They're like, well, you know, I'm a man. You know, I don't, I don't get emotional. Yes, you do. Men are worse at this, actually, than women. Men are much worse at this than women. The reason why is because women actually don't have a stigma about expressing emotions. So usually the woman is more likely to express her emotions clearly than the man. The man almost never, right? I don't think I've ever had a marital couple that has struggles where the man ever expresses his emotions in a vulnerable context. It always comes out as frustration or blame shifting or trying to logically talk through things, but it's almost never like, yeah, you know, you're right. You know, this is what I wanted. I should have explained it this way. 
yeah, I was mad at you. That's why I was doing this. Or maybe I was frustrated at work and I took it out on you. I am sorry, right? Men almost never do that. And real quick side note, it tends to be that opposites attract. Masculine and feminine qualities are not relegated specifically to the genders. They can cross every now and then. So masculine qualities tend to be associated with men, and feminine qualities tend to be associated with women. A masculine quality is lack of emotional depth and compassion. A feminine quality tends to be more nuanced and complex understanding of emotion with compassion and empathy. Those are masculine versus feminine traits. I have seen couples where those are flipped. And in couples where those are flipped, where the woman is more emotionally reserved and the man is more emotionally vulnerable, it breeds resentment very quickly. Because the woman will be like, man, I thought I married a man. And here you are talking about your feelings and wanting me to, and it just breeds this like uh, unbelievable amount of contempt within the relationship. And the man is like, man, I'm used to dating women who are compassionate and empathetic and you're coming at me like a man and it makes them feel small and it makes them feel less than and it could destroy marriage very quickly. So if you're in a relationship where the roles are switched, it takes an increased amount of patience and understanding to be able to walk through that. So be patient with that. And here we almost do see a reverse of the normal gender order. The man is coming to do a grand romantic gesture and he's being rebuffed by the woman. And he's being more emotionally vulnerable and she's being less. And he ends up walking away and she ends up trying to pursue. So we actually do have a reversal here, which is very fascinating to me. So it can reverse. Be careful when that happens and be open to your partner when things like this happen. So if you want good communication, you must be clear in your communication and you must take ownership of your emotions. Do not project them. Do not misinterpret them. Do not translate them into something that they are not. You have to be honest. And if you've never done this before, if you've never actually been honest, you need to start working on it. Now, the good news is you could work on that personally with God. If you want to know how to develop your emotional honesty, read through the Psalms. That's what the Psalms are. The Psalms are people coming before God and seeking to process complicated emotions before him. If you're struggling with expressing loneliness, read Psalm 42, read Psalm 27, read Psalm 63, read Psalm chapter 3. If you're struggling with anger, read Psalm chapter 4, read Psalm 58, right? I could go on and on. Every emotion that you're experiencing has been expressed in scripture. Go to that Psalm, read it, and try to replicate that kind of vulnerability with God. Start with God and then move on to people. Why? Because one of the things that we don't want to do is be rejected. If you are only being emotionally vulnerable before men, or when I say men, I mean mankind, if you're only being emotionally vulnerable before people, I guarantee you they're going to misunderstand you, they're going to mistreat you, they're not going to reciprocate all the time. She doesn't, right? The woman doesn't reciprocate to him. She's not compassionate in this passage. So if you only have that as your outlet and you keep getting shut down, what it's going to do is it's going to cause walls to go up. You need to have a place where you're being emotionally vulnerable, where you know for a fact you will only be met with kindness, patience, and understanding. And the only person who could do that is God. 
once you develop that, it makes you more bold in the way that you share with others. So, next thing that we gain. We see the importance of patience in resolving fights quickly. So again, going back to to verse 4, my lover tried to unlatch the door, and my heart thrilled within me. Now again, that line shows that she was being dishonest, right? She wanted him to try harder, and instead of asking for it, she was passive-aggressive. But verse 5, I jumped up to the door for my love, and my hands dripped with perfume. My fingers dripped with lovely myrrh as I pulled back the bolt. I opened to my lover, but he was gone. My heart sank. I searched for him, but could not find him anywhere. I called to him, but there was no reply. Now, this is a mistake that the man made. So at that point, once he's rebuffed, he should have waited. There's a, there's a proverb that I really like. It's a, I can't remember the exact chapter and verse right now, but you can look it up and find it. It says, a brother offended is more easily won back than a fortified city with walls. Now, back in the day, when they wanted to take a city that was fortified with walls, there was really only one way to do it. It was called siege warfare, right? So if you've ever seen like Lord of the Rings and they're going up against like the walls and Helm's Deep and stuff and they're trying to, they're trying to siege it out. Um, normally what you would do is you actually wouldn't attack the walls like that. The reason why is because you would always lose far greater numbers attacking a fortified position. What you would traditionally do is you would assemble great numbers, right, greater than the, uh, the home team, right, greater numbers than the home team. You would assemble them outside their walls, and you would cut off their supplies, and you would starve them out, right? So you'd wait for them to be so hungry that they would finally come out, and then you could just kill them. So it's kind of a brutal image, but this is what he's saying. If that army attacks, they're going to be rebuffed and hurt. If they run away, they lose the battle. So what the advice there, what the wisdom is, is if you've offended somebody, if you've hurt somebody, if there's conflict, remain close enough to reconcile, but far enough to keep from ex, uh, exacerbating or increasing the fight. So if I just go in and my partner is elevated and I start trying to talk to them while they're elevated, it will go nowhere. And you'll end up both saying things that you later regret and then the fight becomes more about the wrong ways that you fought and less about the actual topic of the fight. So you don't want to be so close, right? If the fight starts exaggerating and getting to that level, you want to have a way to take a break, to separate. But you can't separate so far that the marriage itself or the relationship itself becomes in question, which is what happens here. Notice her emotion. She feels abandoned. She feels abandoned. My heart sank. I searched for him, but could not find him anywhere. I called to him, but there was no reply. He just leaves. He just abandons her. Now, again, in marriage counseling, I see this happen. The couple gets into a fight, and one member will just take off. Now, sometimes this is physical, but sometimes this is emotional. So what happens emotionally is instead of giving affirmation, being like, hey, I'm really upset with you right now. I can't believe what you're saying. It offends me. I hate this but I do love you and I do want to work on this marriage, but I just need some time right now, right? Instead of saying that, it's I'm done. I'm done. We can't come back from this. That kind of extreme emotional abandonment leaves scars on your marriage. And those things cannot be taken back. When your partner, when you get into a fight and at the end of the fight, you feel abandoned physically or emotionally, that is very hard to come back from. 
And it's almost impossible to resolve because it takes a while to forgive that kind of behavior. So if I'm going to distance myself, I need to make sure that my partner knows this is for the purpose of coming back together. I am not leaving you because I'm done. I'm not leaving you because I hate you. I'm not leaving you because you're making no sense and I wish I married someone else. I am separating because I want to resolve this. If that's not articulated, this is what happens. Your partner will feel abandoned. And that's really hard to come back from. Another way, by the way, you can convey this is by shutting down emotionally and refusing to communicate. So if I just stop talking, right, my partner's trying to communicate with me and I'm just like, nope, I'm not going to talk about this. What it tells them is that they're in this alone. There's a real issue happening in the relationship and I can't be bothered to help you go through it because I'm uncomfortable about conflict, right? And that, that's true. So a lot of us, the reason why we shut down emotionally is because we think like, well, you know, conflict makes me uncomfortable. Conflict makes everybody uncomfortable, The only people who are not uncomfortable by conflict are sociopaths, right? So if you're not a sociopath, conflict will make you uncomfortable. And by the way, a reason why conflict accelerates so quickly is because we're uncomfortable, right? When you get uncomfortable and you get stressed out, you usually respond in frustration because you don't know how to articulate your thoughts. It kind of gums you up in your thought process, and it comes out as anger, and it's misdirected anger. So be careful about your emotional well-being in the way that you talk. Try to resolve fights. Try to resolve fights and try to resolve them quickly. The majority of marriages do not ever resolve fights. That's hard to say, but as a marriage counselor, I'll tell you, that's 100% true. The majority of couples do not resolve fights. What they do is they get into a big fight, they take a break, they let their tempers cool down, and then they just stop talking about it. Just like, I don't want to bring that back up again. I'm not jumping on that grenade, you know. We're, we've forgotten it. Let's move on. But you know what happens? That same fight comes back again. And not only does it come back again, this is something else you need to know. Your memories are not totally reliable. Right? So I had to learn this when I was studying for my book, uh, Fellowship of Suffering, which is about trauma. One of the things that I had to study was the effect of trauma and strong emotions on memory. And what I found out is that when you apply sufficient amount of pressure from strong emotion or trauma, it can warp your memory. It could actually change it to the point where you don't remember what happened correctly. But that becomes real to you. Does that make sense? A way that most people can understand this is nostalgia. So nostalgia is a positive way this happens. So over time, your childhood, you begin to look back on it, and because you have associated with it all these positive feelings, what it begins to do is alter the memory to the point where you don't remember any of the negative aspects to that memory. So most people understand that. You can do that with negative emotions too. You could get into a fight with your partner and misremember the fight. So if you've ever been in a fight with your partner, and they're like, I can't believe you said this. And you're like, what? Like, I, don't, I don't remember saying that. And they're like, oh, you totally did. And they, they really remember that way. Now, the reason why they remember it that way is because you've given so much time between when the fight happened and the resolution that that memory just sat in their brain with that really negative emotion associated to it. And over time, it began to warp it and it began to change it. So 
for the person remembering the fight, give your partner the benefit of the doubt. If your partner says, I didn't say that or I didn't do that, give them the benefit of the doubt. Maybe you're telling me the truth. Maybe I'm misremembering it. Or at the worst possible, uh, worst possible situation would be you're being gaslighted, okay? So if you're in an actual abusive relationship where your partner is directly lying to you with the intent of manipulating you and abusing you, then talk to me and I'll help you get out of that relationship because that's what you need to do. But if that's not happening, then what's either happening is you're misremembering it or they are. But regardless, unless you have videotape evidence, you're not going to get anywhere by continuously giving your own perspectives of what happened. Give your partner the benefit of the doubt. Love hopes all things. If you remember them doing something malicious and wicked during the fight, and they're saying, I don't remember doing that, but if I did, I am so sorry. If that's how they're responding to you, give them the benefit of the doubt. Maybe they didn't. Maybe I'm misremembering it. Maybe that's not how it actually happened because we actually see her do this in this section. Notice when she goes to look for him, she describes being stripped and beaten by the watchman. Now, this almost definitely didn't happen. Why? Who is she dating? The king. If the guards of the palace did this to the king's girlfriend, heads would literally roll, right? There's almost no way that this actually happened. But because of, again, her high emotionality, she is misreading everything as a physical threat. Does that make sense? So when you're emotionally elevated, you can actually misread things as being physical threats to your being when they're actually not. So be careful about your memory. Be careful about how you're looking at things. Now, some people will say, well, are you calling me crazy? No, but I am saying that your mind is not infallible. The Bible warns us about this all the time. The heart is deceitful and wicked above all things. Who can know it? The truly mad people out there, the truly crazy people, are the people who don't think that their heart ever lies to them. Those are the crazy people. I have talked to legitimately crazy people. And you know what they don't do? They never doubt the thoughts that they're having. Ever. They are totally fixated on, no, this is true. There could be evidence staring them right in the face that that's not true, and they will still say, nope, it's not true. That's a crazy person. If you're sane, you doubt your thoughts. You doubt them because they can lie to you, and you know they can lie to you. But if we're going to sink in our heels and be like, no, that didn't happen, and be more concerned about winning the fight than gaining intimacy with our partner, then you're going to cause a lot of emotional damage to your relationship and stuff that you can't come back from. Give your partner the uh, benefit of the doubt and try to resolve fights quickly. Try to resolve fights quickly. The normal, there's no like time frame. I, I try to tell people it's got to be within the first couple days. Try to do it within the first couple days. Some Christians are like, don't let the sun go down on your anger. You know, I have to, before the sun goes down, there's like a time, I don't know. That, that's, all it's saying is don't sit with something for a very long time, right? Obviously, it doesn't literally mean that if you're still in a fight with someone and the sun goes down, it's over, you know? It just means, because what if you get into a fight with someone at sunset, you know what I mean? Like, it's obviously not what it's talking about. It's just saying, don't allow it to stretch out for long periods of time. Try to resolve it as quickly as possible. So if you get into a fight with your partner and you got kids running around and like there's stuff going, you got to go to work. Sometimes you can't resolve the fight right off the bat, but try to do it within the next couple of days. Have a plan where like, no, we're going to talk about this. 
We're going to talk about this. We're going to get, we're going to get through it. And if we can't come to a resolution together, let's invite a third party in. We'll talk about that more in a second. But let's invite a third party in to mediate. Because maybe we're just not seeing things correctly and we need someone to help sort out our misperceptions. Right? That's an important tool to have in your belt when it comes to marital fights. Because misunderstandings happen and they breed resentment. And you need to be careful. Okay. The next point, I already talked about it a little bit, but when fights aren't resolved correctly, we feel abandoned and alone. And uh, this is, by the way, the opposite of what marriage is supposed to do. The reason why marriage exists is so that you can fight without fearing abandonment. So one of the reasons why dating couples don't actually know what marriage is like is because when you're dating, you're on your best behavior because you're trying to get that person to marry you. You're either on your best behavior, or you have one foot in and one foot out. There's a little bit of a comfortability with the fact that you're not committed to that person. And if things don't go well, you could always try someone else. Marriage is designed, it's literally designed to do away with that so that people can show you who they really are and they can start trying to confide in you, right? To be honest and not fear abandonment. That's why we make vows to one another. It's supposed to provide security, When the marital vows are used as a weapon, this becomes highly dysfunctional, highly fast, and it destroys the security. What do I mean? If I ever threaten separation and divorce, and I don't really mean it, then I have used my marital vows as a weapon to control my partner. So if I mean it, that's one thing, right? If I really think that violations or sins or things are happening within the relationship that justify divorce— then that's okay. I could say that because that's true. But if not, if that's just the way I vent, that is incredibly unhealthy. Now, that may be learned behavior. It may be something that you picked up from your parents or maybe just bad previous relationships. It can be unlearned, but be very careful with it. If it's something that is in your go-to box of arguments, do everything you can to work on that behavior. Because, again, you are going to leave long-lasting wounds on your partner if you are not very careful. You need to do everything you can to deal with that type of behavior. So be careful about that. And, again, you know, usually when I have these conversations with couples, they'll be like, you know, well, you don't know what they do and blah, 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 blah. And what I always point out is like, hey, the way that we're supposed to love is the way that Jesus loved. And Jesus did not love a perfect bride. He doesn't love a perfect bride. He loves a very imperfect people that he is making perfect through his relationship with us. C.S. Lewis once said, marriage looks most like God when it resembles the cross the most. Right? That's the whole point. Jesus died for people who are crucifying him. If you want to glorify God's love, Jesus said, if you love those who love you back, what credit is that to you? Everybody does that you really want to show God's love, love your enemies. And your spouse, your marital partner, has the potential to be your greatest enemy because they are more near to you, they're more intimate with you, and they know the buttons that they could push to really hurt you. So your spouse could be your worst enemy at the height of fighting, and if you don't know how to love your enemy, you're not going to know how to push through it. So commitment is very key. You never want there to be a feeling of abandonment within the relationship. Now, we talked about this a little bit. I don't have time to get into it much more right now. We talked about this more last service. But the idea, there's a difference. There's a distinction between what we do 
individually versus what we do in the relationship. So if I struggle with abandonment issues, maybe my partner's not doing anything to make me feel abandoned, but that's just my baggage. I'm just, I've been abandoned in the past, and so I am terrified it's going to happen again, and I'm projecting that on my spouse. That's very possible. And we talked about this more last service, about how to find affirmation and uh, solid foundation in God and not looking for that in your partner. That's true. Individually, you can say, there's nothing you can do to make me feel abandoned because I have all the security and confidence in God. That's true. But what's true individually is not true relationally. You can feel secure even if your partner's being abusive. True. But the marriage won't feel secure unless both parties are affirming that security and commitment. And that's a different sentence. Yes, you are right to say, I don't feel abandoned. Even when you abandon me, I don't feel abandoned because I have God. However, it's correct to say, when you abandon me, the marriage is hurting. You have walked out on the vows. You have hurt the relationship. That's bad. You can sin against the relationship. You really can. It's, a, it's an entity unto itself. Okay, next point, because I'm out of time. The importance of good counsel. If you notice... The women of Jerusalem, which are one of the, I guess you call them the characters in this particular song, right? This, this opera, this musical, uh, they chime in every now and then. And it seems like when you're reading their, their takes on it, it seems like these are younger women, younger virgins, unmarried women, who the Shulamite, Solomon's wife, is kind of instructing, which is really cool. But what, what they say is, why is your husband so great? Now, now, the reason why I point this out is because when you get into marital conflict, you know there are people that will let you get away with bad things, and there are people who won't. Meaning, if I, really, if I got into a fight with my wife and all I wanted was validation, I have a list of people on my phone that could give me that. They're all my friends from the Marines. And I could be like, hey, this is the fight that just happened. And they'll be like, oh, man, chicks are crazy. You know, they suck. Who knows women? You know, they're just so dumb. Yeah, blah, blah, blah. And they'll, just, and they'll just feed. They'll feed my ego and they'll feed my side of things and they'll warp me. But I know that there are people in my life who when I start complaining, when I start venting about my marital problems, they'll stop me and say, hey, how are you living unto Christ right now? Because I'm not there. To, they're not here. They can't defend themselves. You could be lying. You could be telling the truth. I don't know. It's between you and God. But how are you behaving? in a way that exemplifies Christ. You need people in your life that will do that for you. If you don't pursue relationships like that, you don't want someone who is just there to hear you vent. Now, some people say like, well, I like venting. It gets it out of my system. No, it doesn't. No, it doesn't, right? So part of my job is, again, I, have to do, I do have to study modern-day psychology. And what they found is the more you feed emotions, it makes them temporarily go away, but it makes them bigger when they come back. So, for instance, if you're like, man, I'm really hungry. I'm going to just go to Golden Crown and stuff my face. It will satisfy your hunger, but you know what else it will do? It will expand your stomach ever so slightly so that the same amount of food that filled you today will not feed you tomorrow. Emotions work like that. When you vent, it momentarily makes you feel better. But when the emotion comes back, and it will... It will be stronger than the first time it came. So we think we're dealing with it when we vent or we get out our aggression somehow. Like some guys are like, man, I just want to go like blow something up or like hit a punching bag. It's like, yeah, that will make you feel momentarily better, but it will make you overall a more aggressive person. 
You're not dealing with your emotion. You're allowing it to deal with you. You need people who can stop you when you are freaking out and say like, okay, I get it. Maybe they are the biggest jerk in the world, but let's talk about this from a spiritual point of view, from a religious point of view. And if you start pushing those people away and more ingratiating yourself to people who are just feeding your ego and your emotional lies, you will become a worse person over time. So they say that to her and she could totally give in, right? She could be like, why is your husband greater than anyone else? She's like, he's not. The jerk just abandoned me, right? He just, he just showed up my house at four in the morning, wanted to go on a date. And then when I tried to open the door to him five minutes later, he just took off, right? She could have easily just fed into it. But what does she do? She praises him. She praises him. Spend time praising your partner, especially when things are going bad. To yourself. You don't even have to do it to them. To yourself. Because what starts happening when you are in a fight, your focus narrows and you forget all of the good things that your partner does. You really do. That's why we talk in extremes, by the way. Right? So we don't say like, hey, you know, what you just did made me feel bad. It made me feel abandoned. We say, you always abandoned me. You never love me. You never did. You know, we, the reason why we talk in extremes like that is because we don't know how to curve our emotions. We're being foolish when we do that. Now, that's ubiquitous. Right? I'll tell you as a marriage counselor, everybody does it. Right? It's ubiquitous. It's just widespread. Everybody does it. But it's still evil. And it still needs to be dealt with. You shouldn't talk that way. And you should work on that. And part of the way you work on it is reminding yourself of why you're in the relationship in the first place. Think about the good aspects of your partner. Spend time meditating on those good aspects because what happens over time, this also feeds into passion as well. Over time, you start to feel entitled to your partner's attributes and offended by their faults. So in other words, you just see all of their attributes as just, I deserve that. And you are no longer thankful. You're no longer thankful for their looks. You're no longer thankful for the way they look. You're no longer thankful. All the reasons why you married them, you will forget over time unless you're intentional about this. And when you forget them and all that's left is the evil, you know, I, I sit down with couples and I'm like, well, what do you like about them? And they're like, nothing. He's fat, lazy, doesn't do anything for me, you know, like he doesn't communicate well. He abandons me all the time and she just go off. And then the guy's like, yeah, she's let herself go too. She's a nag. She's horrible, right? And those just go off. And I'm like, okay, so you married a nag who's terrible to you all the time. Great. So you stood up in front of a group of friends and families and you made vows to someone you hate. So if you're telling me the truth right now, you're an idiot and there's nothing I can do for you, right? Because that means that you are just so deceived you're so emotionally manipulated that you will impulsively marry someone who's the devil, right? You're, you're, that makes you a terrible person. Don't you see that, right? The alternative is, is you married someone who's good, but just like all of us, she has evil in her. And you blinded yourself to those issues because you were so fixated on the good points, you didn't notice the bad. And now that you're seeing the bad, you're freaking out and you're trying to renege on what you said. Be careful. Be careful to spend time remembering the good qualities of your partner or they'll be lost. This happens independent of your partner. It happens independent of your partner. Notice he's not present when she's doing this. Right? So in other portions of the book, they're complimenting one another to one another. In this section, that's not happening. She's praising him mainly to herself, but also to the women who are talking to her. She's like, I'm going to make my husband look good. I'm going to make him look good. 
I don't know if that's ever in your mind. And, and I'll end with this. Your friends, your family, their only knowledge of this person, their true knowledge of this person comes from you. And if you spend your time venting to your family, venting to your friends, you are turning them into your partner's enemies. Because they don't see the good points, they only hear the bad. And so what they're going to start doing is they're going to start misinterpreting all of your partner's behavior and say, like, well, this is just a facade, it's not real. And then you're going to make your partner feel uncomfortable around your friends and family because they're like, I feel like they hate my guts. And you know why you feel that way? Because they do. Because your partner has literally turned them against you because they just complained about you all the time. And what that does is it then alienates you from being able to come to the people that your spouse values the opinion of the most. The people who should be most on the side of your relationship start turning on it because you've turned them against it. Be careful what you share with your closest friends and family. Hey, there are people like me where you could come and talk to me. I'm a marital counselor. Like, you could share all the the evil stuff. It's not going to turn my opinion of these people. The reason why is because I hear it all the time. You know, if, if I was affected by it, I would be a terrible marriage counselor. So you could talk to people. There are people in your life who won't be affected by it. But you need to be careful in the people that you choose and make sure, even with people like me who don't have a vested interest in it, spend time promoting your partner with them. Spend time saying, yeah, they're doing all this stuff, but hey, I do, I do remember there's a reason why I married them. And you know what they are? They are overall very kind and they're very compassionate and they're very awesome. You know, and I, sometimes I forget that. And if you're trying to help someone, ask that question. Why did you marry them in the first place? What is so great about them? Push them, get them to think about these things. If you don't, and all you do is have a gripe session with somebody, you're going to be reaffirming their decision to leave. So be careful about all these things. So when it comes to marital conflict, just to wrap it up nicely, it's inevitable. It's a part of every healthy relationship. But if we don't learn from these things, if we don't learn from these rules and understand, and there's so much more I could go into right now, but if we don't learn from these things, we will repeat them and they will become progressively worse over time. Communication is not natural. It's just not. Nobody naturally knows how to do it. You have to learn it. And most of us have had the worst teachers ever, namely the culture and friends and family. And they've given us terrible advice. And we need to unlearn all that garbage because it is garbage. And we need to relearn a way to do it that's healthy and God-glorifying. So let's pray. Father, we want to thank you so much. We want to learn from these examples. God, because you are precious and you are beautiful, we want to learn how to reflect you in the way that we communicate and even have conflict. God, we're all, we all struggle with this. I know I could be so hard-headed. I could be so stubborn in the way I communicate with my wife. I can misunderstand things. I could project. I could be very foolish in taking her for granted. So, Lord, please forgive me for those things. Help me to be a better husband to my wife. Help me to care for her in a way that reflects your heart and your glory. And I pray for all of us as a church, Lord, that as you said, the world will know us that we are your disciples by the love we have for one another. I pray that our love, especially our marital love, would be something that is reflective of you, that shows something different. And we all know that we have a long way to go. We're fallen. We're flawed. We make a lot of mistakes. But help us to have courage and to have confidence to pursue better behavior in you, Lord. Help us not to be weighed down by laziness or by indifference. Help us to pursue right behavior in you, Lord, knowing that you can help us. You can make us more like your son. We love you, God, and in your name. Amen.